Welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where we talk to thought leaders, creatives, authors, and entrepreneurs about how sometimes the best thing to happen to you is the most unexpected. Welcome your host, Antonio Neves. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where I talk to people about the best thing to ever to happen to them that doesn't include the traditional markers of success. I'm your host, Antonio Neves. I'm a speaker, author, and coach. And each week I bring on a new guest who has a powerful story to tell that will motivate, inspire, and help you see life through a new lens. This week's guest I met about 10 years ago when I was working in the television industry in New York City with NBC. And from day one of working with her, I knew that not only was she special, but she was unique, but also that she would go on to do exceptional things. Shauna Thomas is an award-winning journalist, and I mean like a whole bunch of awards. She's a content development executive for Quibi. She also serves as a political contributor for NBC News and MSNBC. Now, prior to her current work, she was the Washington, D.C. bureau chief and correspondent for Vice News, where she covered, listen to this, some of the most important events in recent memory like President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's summit in Singapore and the infamous Trump Hutent meeting in Helsinki. Prior to working with Vice News, Shauna served as senior producer and senior digital editor of NBC's Meet the Press. Look, there's so much more I can say, but if I did, I'd never get to the interview. So Shauna Thomas, welcome to The Best Thing. Hey, thanks for reading only a quarter of my bio. Listen, I saw your bio when it arrived and I said I would still be reading right now. But the truth is, it's like a pretty impressive bio. And and I'm curious, you're from Houston. You went to undergrad in D.C., if I believe. You found your way to graduate school at, at USC. When you hear your bio today in 2020, I mean, is it something that surprises you, all those things that you hear? Or when you think about those goals and aspirations you had for yourself, like, like no, these are the things that I wanted to do, Antonio. Some of them are the things that I wanted to do, and I had a pretty somewhat clear path going into college in a way that I think most 17 and 18-year-olds don't. But I will say there are times when, especially when someone else like you reads my bio with such gusto, thank you for that, I think about sort of like that little girl in Houston, Texas, who never had been out of the country until after she went to college and didn't know that this job of television news and journalism, like I watched TV and I watched news and all that kind of stuff, but that like that was really a thing that would take me to every continent in the world except for Antarctica. I do get a little happy about it because it was just something that I don't think most people would have thought I would achieve or that I think I even thought I would achieve when I was eight years old in Houston. So Yeah, it was fascinating for me as I think about it. As I mentioned in the introduction, Sean and I worked uh, briefly together uh, at NBC. I was the correspondent of a business show that NBC produced. And at the time, I believe, Sean, you were an associate producer or a producer on this show. So I just mentioned Shauna covering things like Trump and North Korean leader and Singapore and Trump and Putin in Helsinki. But back then, 10 years ago, what, 2010, we were crammed. 2009, actually. Okay, 2009. We were crammed in minivans covering <laughs> small, medium-sized businesses across the country. So even then, I'm curious, even when you didn't have the job, I guess, that you wanted, uh, you still had a vision in front of you of where you wanted to go. Is that fair to say? 
that is really fair to say. And I, you know, I did want that job as an associate producer, working with you, working on that small business show, other projects. It was a very strange, weird, small part of NBC News that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, I took that job really, really specifically because I was on the assignment desk before in New York for NBC News. And that was a really great job too and taught me a lot about NBC. Um, But I really wanted to go back to being a producer and sort of taking advantage of some of the skills I learned at USC. And I wanted to tell stories. And on the assignment desk, you you are helping other people get what they need to be able to tell stories for the network. You're not necessarily producing those stories yourself. Um, and I wanted to go back to doing that. And it was a good opportunity to move to sort of a different section of NBC News, pick up a camera again, start editing again. All those skills that cost a lot of money at the University of Southern California, I wanted to go back to using them and telling stories and growing in my job. So I that was the job I wanted at that point. That was my stepping off of the desk and like launching into being a producer. And we had a boss manager at the time who allowed me to go ahead and do that. Yeah, it was a pretty fascinating job. It was a business show called Cool Runnings. Who I didn't knows think it? you were going to mention the name. I'm, I'm going to say it out loud. It. The, the uh, <laughs> unfortunate name, Cool Runnings. I don't know if you can even find this show online, but I, I had a blast. It was so much fun. Went all across the country. I can tell you some fun stories about being with Shauna in Alaska, uh, but that's for uh, another day. <laughs> oh, there's a great moment on the road, but I'm not going to go there right now. Oh, my goodness. What a good time. One of the best moments of my life. Uh, but, you know, something about you, Shauna, that stood out from when I, I remember the first time I met you and I forgot where we were on the shoot. But one thing I realized about you immediately, unlike a lot of people, is that you were willing to have an opinion. You were actually willing to stand for something. And I think when you work in the television industry, if you're a production assistant, if you're an associate producer, sometimes you, people are a little bit quiet and they don't have opinions. But I'm curious about you because you're an extremely confident person. That's how I've always viewed you. But again, can you talk about the willingness to stand for something and to have an opinion. Is that how you've always been or uh, is that something that you've developed over the years? I think that's how I've always been. And I think that's just based on how my mom raised me, to be honest. Um, I think I had to learn when to express an opinion versus not express it. And I think that's important in the business world and the television world that both you and I work and have worked in. But I do want to be cautious because I think what you're talking about is sort of an ability to make decisions more so than I have political opinions that I spew all the time or something like that in terms of journalism. Um, I think what I had learned even by that point when it came to television and life, I guess, um, was a lot of time gets wasted waiting for someone to make a decision. Mm. And it doesn't mean you need to rush every decision but a lot of the hemming and hawing, you sometimes got to go and you got to take charge. And I do think I was raised in a way to go ahead and take charge of things. Um, but part of doing a good job of that is listening to the people around you and factoring those things in. But I am definitely a person who will be like, okay, what's the problem? Let's solve it. Let's keep moving. And I think that is a very big part, especially making daily television news. Before we get to the question about the best thing, one last question I want to have for you is over the course of your career, I mentioned you've worked with NBC, you've worked with Meet the Press, with Vice News, you've covered so many different topics. Um, Now with Quibi, I kind of got it right. Good enough. Good enough. (laughs) By the way, for people who are listening right now, just to tell them what what it is so they can make sure they they, they get up on it and uh, tune in. 
Yes, yes, please go download Quibi. Uh, so it is a short form mobile video network for your phone, um, which also can now be cast to Apple TV and Chromecast, but it was designed for your phone. It, all of the content on it is 10 minutes or less. There are movies, there are alternative shows, there are game shows, and the stuff I primarily manage are the news products on the platform. So Quibi.com or Quibi on the App Store. What I will say is that I think everyone can find something that they like on the platform uh, or makes them think or just makes them laugh. All of those things have been covered for me, but it's all 10 minutes or less. Over the course of your career, Sean, you've worked with a lot of big personalities. I mean, of course, you're talking about Jeffrey Katzenberg, Meg Whitman. Uh, of course, you mentioned you've worked at the White House for a long time, Meet the Press, big personalities. What have you learned about working with powerful personalities and, and how to make that work? Most of the time, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the caveat on it, most of the time, they want to hear what you think. Most of the time, big personalities have tried to surround themselves with people that they think are smart and interesting and are hired for not just their knowledge, not just the things that they've already learned, but also the way they think through things. And so I think in the right circumstances and settings and with with the right big personalities, they want you to speak up. They want you to push back. They want you to do it in a respectful way because I think you want to be respectful with everybody. But they are, in essence, paying for your thoughts and the way you think. And they want, they, because they are big personalities, they want to look as good as humanly possible. That is also why they hired you to contribute to that. And I, I think I've seen a lot of that with Jeffrey Katzenberg over the last, I've been at the job since November of 2019. Um, I definitely saw that with Chuck Todd at Meet the Press. But if you're going to be in the room, especially as a person of color, as a black woman, as I am, you want the decisions that you want the decisions that are made to have your thought process be part of it. Mm. People who hire you, at least at this point in our lives, are going to want that too. You know, I wasn't going to, I didn't anticipate asking this question, but if you're open to, to discussing it, it would be great. Uh, one thing I'm astutely aware of over the course of my career, specifically in the television industry, you know, over 12 years, and, and now as I travel across the country, when I could get on a plane and speak on stages, I, I know what it's like very much to be one of the only ones, if you yeah. will, to be that lone person of color um, in the room, on the stage. Uh, in front, you you name it. So I'm curious over the course of your career, when you have been in an industry that doesn't have uh, as much diversity as I, I would like it to have by no means, have you felt pressure being the, the only, the quote unquote, I hate the word only, but the, the only, the token? some people definitely would view it as the token. Have you felt pressure in that? Or have you felt more driven by that to show them like, come on, I should not be the only one here. What's wrong? See, I think I felt both those things, but I think they lead to each other. So I think I have felt, and this isn't just my career, this is how I was raised to a certain extent. I think I was raised to believe that as a Black woman, that you do have to kind of try to be the best in the room, or no one's going to take you seriously. And in some ways, I think that has served me well in my career. I've, I've had some success, and that's a good thing. But what I also always feel, and I actually talked about this recently on, on a radio show, is everything I do, I think, and this can be crazy or not, but I think other Black women will be judged by the way I perform in the job. 
Mm. And so it is on me to not only just do a good job, but can I curse on this show? Um, it is on me to not f- it up for the next black woman behind me. Mm-hmm. So I really, really need everyone to believe that not only can Shauna Thomas do the job, but black women can do this job. And so I really want y'all to consider people of all colors and races and everything else when you know, a job like the one that I currently have becomes open because I go on to the next thing. Um, But I feel a lot of pressure to not screw up. You just articulated something that I don't think I've ever thought. I've thought about it, but I haven't been able to articulate it like that. That pressure that that's a that's a back. That's a heavy backpack to wear Uh, because we know there are other people that can, quote unquote, up. And there are no repercussions. The, The whole community, their whole community is not going to be judged by that decision they make. But to your point, I definitely have felt that pressure. Like if I mess this up right now, this, this could mess it up for that next person. That's a, that's a heavy weight to carry. And it's also, um, you know, that's, maybe that's why you show up as exceptional as you do and have had uh, the career that you've had. So I really appreciate you being willing to share that. Um, so let's transition to this question. The question of Shauna being what's one of the best things to happen to you that's not one of those traditional markers of success, like getting married, having kids, buying a house, all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, and what's fascinating about this question of the, as the, of the best thing, as listeners know, is that typically the best thing isn't always uh, the prettiest thing. With hindsight, we, we've learned from and, and even the word best can be a little bit off. But I'm just curious as you hear that question, what comes up for you? So thinking about that question, um, and this is definitely not the traditional answer, uh, or is not something that I would normally describe as best by any means. But the thing it brings up for me is actually the death of my best friend from high school. And he died in 2010. But in the lead up to his death, I was involved in trying to basically find him. Um, and involved his parents in that in a way that at the time I was really worried about calling his parents. But basically, um, I went to high school in Houston, Texas, to a school called the High School for the Performing and Visual Arts for a couple of years and had a friend named Chris. I'm not going to use his last name. And we just clicked. Like, it's he was just my best friend from high school. There's no other way to describe it. We were definitely different people, but we we definitely took care of each other. Um, and I, and, you know, I, I loved him. He loved me. We kept in touch even when he went away to school in Atlanta and then ended up at school in New York and I was in DC, but I'd go see him over spring break. Like we just, it was a really good, solid friendship, but Chris definitely started to exhibit mental problems in our early twenties. Um, and I think some of it myself um, other friends of ours who knew both of us laughed it off as just eccentricity because he was also, sorry, I shouldn't say also, but he was super smart. Um, also, we both had, were theater kids and music kids and all that kind of stuff. So you can kind of laugh some strangeness off by the, that way. And I think people laugh some of my strangeness off that way too. But, you know, as the 2000s kept going, I, and I actually pulled up a lot of my old emails and G chats with Chris uh, before we had this conversation, the emails started to be conspiracy theory emails. Um, But he would top it off with something that made total sense. Like you should really read this because, you know, 
you need to connect the droughts to the lack of food in parts of the world. And we all need to be on farms, like things like that, which in one way you're like, oh, okay, kind of. But then he'd attach or link to kind of all of these crazy websites or want to talk about the Illuminati or things like that. But he had a job. He seemed fine. Um, he started traveling around the world and going to different types of places and living kind of an interesting best life. And then in the summer of 2010, he started emailing me um, and he started G-chatting me. And I'm actually just going to read you one of the emails. Um, And this was June 30th, 2010. Do you have a farm, Shauna? And have you been sending me messages regarding moving to a farm? I love you very dearly. And with all of my heart and more, Shauna, I do. Please tell me if you've been trying to communicate with me about returning to the States. And at this point, he was living in Argentina. And I wrote him back like a normal email, like, hey, no, why do you think I have been trying to communicate with you about a farm? And he said, that's all I need to know. I will explain later. Much love, much. And then later we had a G-chat about this. So he was responding directly to me. This is a few days later on July 1st. And he writes me, have you bought a farm and and have you invited me to come and live with you and have a family, yes or no? And I said, no, I don't have the money to buy a farm. And I asked him whether someone had hijacked my email account. Like, I'm trying to rationalize this kind of stuff. Um, And he said, sorry, I was abducted, robbed, beaten, and thrown into a mental institution. It's been horrible. Only today am I getting out. I've been here for four days. And my response was, where, wait, really, where are you? Will you answer your phone? What mental institution, like what is going on? And he tells me he's in Santiago in Argentina. And I said, what happened? Was this your parents? And he writes, I tell you, but you won't believe the reasons. I've already tried to have that particular conversation and explain those things. But I just wanted to make sure that you had not bought a farm because someone told me that. And I asked him, was this something your family did? Because I can't imagine anyone else would think to use me as a ploy to get you back to the US other than your family. And he said, no, you will not believe me if I explain to you who. You will not because we've already had that conversation. And I say, I do not think we have had that conversation. And then later on in the conversation, he asked me to wire him money. And I tell him that I can't do that until I understand more and I need him to talk to me. And the end of that conversation, he says... Once I explain the circumstances of my abduction to you, yes, abduction by nine people, you will see. Bye. I must go now. And I wrote, okay, I love you. And I never talked to him again. And a few days later, I I kept trying to G-chat him because he wasn't answering phone calls or anything like that. And in the time between that and July 5th, when I ended up getting in touch with his parents, um, I talked to one of our mutual friends from high school, a guy named Charlie, who was lovely and great, and said, I was really worried, but also I know that he, like Chris would freak out if I tried to bring his parents into this and we were in our 20s and we're adults and blah, blah, blah. And Charlie was like, if you're worried, you should call his parents. And I sat with that for a while. And I think I sat with it for too long. Um, And I finally got in touch with his sister via Facebook or whatever. Um, and she contacted me back almost immediately and was like, can you call my parents? Here's their phone number. And I did. And they were like, we've been looking for Chris. We've been trying to communicate with him. We haven't heard from him. What do you know? 
And so what I did was I forwarded kind of all the email and chat traffic that I had to them and what he told me about where he was, where he thought he was going. He thought he was going to end up going back to a different town in Argentina um, and, uh, and just everything I knew as they tried to figure out where their son was. And it took them a while to figure that out. But a few weeks actually later, uh, I am at that point, because I work for NBC News this time, I'm in New Orleans and I'm covering the BP oil spill. Um, And I'm out to dinner with the correspondent I'm there with and another producer who lives in Louisiana. And my phone rings and it's Chris's parents and I walk outside and take it and they tell me while I'm standing in a place where I do not have any friends or family. They tell me Chris was dead and they had found his body in a lake in Argentina and that they were working on trying to get it back to the United States, which would take a while. And I sort of collapse and I start to cry, but I go back into the restaurant and I'm like, I have to go. I had to deal with some other stuff. I don't know either of the people that I'm working with in Louisiana well enough to express anything to them. And I go back to my hotel and I was staying at some like Hilton Garden Inn in New Orleans and all the rest of the teams were staying at like really, really nice hotels, but I was trying to be economic or economical or whatever. And I end up calling another friend and sort of crying on the phone for a while. But I also end up going through this whole, like I start to believe there are ghosts in the room. It's a really shit hotel room. I start to get really scared. I end up leaving the hotel room and going to some random bar in New Orleans by myself where a really nice man who was not actually hitting on me just talked to me for a long time and was just nice to me. And I needed that. And I ended up calling my mom and telling her, But I also told her about how freaked out I was in this hotel room. And my mom usually, like, if you say something that's kind of, like, weird or off like that, because there was no reason for me to be freaked out by this hotel room. But if you say something strange like that, my mom would usually kind of, like, that's weird, Shauna, what do you mean by that? And I always remember she knew that I was was not okay. And she just said, go to a different hotel. Just check out and go to a different hotel. I did actually the next day go to a much nicer hotel. I did check out because I was scared of the ghosts in the room. And I tell that story because in the years since then, I have had a lot of regret about the time that I wasted after getting those strange messages from Chris and talking to his parents and trying to actually find him. And I worry a lot and there's probably nothing any of us could have done. I I don't know what kind of diagnosis he had, but he'd been to enough therapists and we knew something was off. But it's very, very hard not to blame yourself for not acting faster. And so what I've learned when it comes to friends and, and you know, I thought of Chris's family. He is someone who I specifically made sure at my wedding we talked about. Um, kind of the way you talk about like your grandmothers who are not there and that kind of thing. I invited Chris's parents to my wedding because if Chris had been alive, he would have been in my wedding. But what I've learned is if you're worried about someone, don't wait. Don't be embarrassed. Yes, in a short-term way, someone may get really mad at you for intervening or trying to intervene or trying to say something or trying to make it better, especially if they do not think they have a problem of any kind. But I recently went through something where I, where someone else 
Lewis's parents that I know and that I'm friends, someone who I'm friends with, their father got really worried about them to the point where they called me. And I went over to their house and I shouldn't have because it was COVID-19 time. And I basically pounded on the door until she talked to me, but she would not answer the door. And in Shauna from before 2010 would not have done this. I would have been like, she'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be okay. I ended up calling the police and having them knock her door down. And it's good we did because she really needed to go to a hospital. And I think had I not had this experience with Chris, I wouldn't have done it because you don't want to be wrong about that. And you don't want to be embarrassed about it. And, you know, the police were looking at me like I was crazy, like really, like, should we be here? Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, something's actually really, really wrong. And I feel it. And I'm going to act quickly this time. And I think that is also what good friendship is. Yeah, well, first is thank you for for being willing to to share that. And I'm sure that's not easy to share out loud, even going through all those those emails. And, you know, a few things come up for me from that poignant and simultaneous uh, heartbreaking story is I knew you back in 2010. We hung out in 2010. Yeah. Uh, spent lots of time. And what comes up for me, Shauna, as I hear you say that is that it's a reminder of how we never know what someone else is going through. Yep. Our friends. I'm thinking about you and the times that we hung out. And I'm sure we had a good time with all of our other friends. We hung out, have some beers or whatever. But for me, just personally, it's a reminder that never make an assumption because someone is smiling and they look like all is good and they're doing their work on time, et cetera, that everything is okay because they could be going through something. So it reminds me just to lean on people and ask them, no, how are you really doing prior to hitting record on this call? I was like, Sean, how are, I'm not going to reveal everything we shared, but I was like, Sean, how are you doing? How's your spirit? And there's a few people in my life that I actually can give a real answer to. And Shauna gave me a real answer yeah. and I gave her a real answer. And I'm just thinking about how many people I don't give uh, real answers to. Um, just, just briefly, um, of course, I have so much compassion for you. I'm sure people listening to this equally have so much compassion and that they'll hear you say there was time wasted and and I'm sure everyone's listening saying, of course, Shauna, there's nothing you probably could have done about this. I'm sure that doesn't make anything easier for you to hear uh, today. But for someone that is listening to this and they're curious, when you said, um, if you're worried about someone, don't wait. Uh, for you these days, does that solely exist on a, on, on a mental health perspective? I know over the course of your career, you, you've managed and you led people and teams. So I'm curious, how does that, does that mindset only exist again, personal life, people may be going through something, really some trauma or something, or do you see that that's showing up for you also just as a leader, as a boss manager? I think it shows up for me as a boss sometimes. And the way that it manifests itself is, is I think I'm willing to confront is probably the wrong word, but I'm going to use it anyway confront a staffer about something going on a lot faster and a lot more sort of pointedly than I think a lot of people do. There are definitely, I can think of, especially when I was the bureau chief advice multiple times where, you know, I could hear that someone was frustrated about something, usually work-related, sometimes it's personal, but mostly work. And instead of just being like, they're going to figure that out on their own and that is not my problem, it would be like, no, wait, why are you frustrated? let's like once again let's solve the problem but you've got to tell me why you're acting the way you're acting now you remember at the very end before um my show with vice and hbo was canceled i had one producer who was just like being a total asshole to me and i took him outside and i was like hey 
why are you being an asshole to me? And, you know, I'm sure there's some HR rule that says I shouldn't have phrased it that way. But I really was like, whatever your attitude is, if it's about something I did, let's figure that out. But if it's something going on in your life, you need to realize that it's affecting a lot of other people around you as we try to get stuff done. Um, But I need to understand what's going on to a certain extent so that we can try to like get through whatever this is together. I think the other thing that I learned incorporate some of what we've already talked about uh, into as a manager and as a boss is you do realize, especially if it is a small group of people that you are managing, you do kind of have to know what's going on in their lives to be a good manager. You do have to be mindful of family and job and kids and everything else that they're doing so that you're not overloading them or you're not making their lives miserable because right now maybe their home life is miserable. You end up knowing about people's divorces and their family members dying and all this other stuff because you want to create a work environment that allows them to succeed. But if you overload people, if you do too much, that kind of thing, you're not someone's therapist. You don't ask them about everything going on in their lives, but you have to be mindful of listening to what's going on around you and knowing when is the right time to sort of step in and be like, is there too much on your plate? Because I've heard now you talk about this, this, and this with five other people. I'm worried, you know what, I'm going to assign that thing to someone else. And it doesn't mean you're not doing a good job, but I'm just worried about you. Um, I think I learned a lot about you do kind of have to take on everyone's lives and understand them to be able to be a good manager at a certain level. I think once you're like head of a Fortune 500 company, I'm not sure how that works. Maybe one day I'll find out. But I think at the level I was at, I I made a point of kind of understanding what was going on in people's lives. You know, what I'm hearing as you discuss right now and thinking about previous circumstances is A, a situational awareness that you had. We're talking a lot about emotional intelligence that I'm sorry, a lot of people don't have it. A lot of people don't have that common sense because they haven't had uh, to have it. Um, but I'm also just thinking, Shauna, briefly about your willingness during COVID-19, don't leave your house. You're going to get attacked by something, right? Your willingness during COVID-19 when you felt that something was off and that something was wrong and your willingness to go to bang on your friend's door, even when she didn't want it, your willingness to call the police. And I can just think about myself so many periods in my life when I would walk away from a phone conversation, Shauna, I'd walk away from drinks with a friend and the, the gut, the gut, the instincts, man, the intuition very rarely lies. Yeah. It very rarely lies. I walk away and I'm like, you know, something wasn't right with him tonight. Something wasn't right with her tonight. And I'd like to think most times I do make that phone call, but selfishly, I I don't think I always do. So I just applaud you for being willing to do that. And what this is reminding me of, and I'm curious if your perspective is a couple of things, um, especially as it relates to family and friends. Sometimes I think we're willing to have these conversations with colleagues more, more than we're willing to have with our family and friends, people that know us best. So A, I'm thinking about A, we must be willing to have the conversation, even if it's uncomfortable, right? That's yeah. where the magic is going to happen. And, you know, tough conversations are tough for a reason. So I'm just curious, would you be willing to talk about the willingness to have those tough conversations and also how challenging it is with family and friends, people who know us best? Well, I think one of the challenges there is you're afraid of losing them. That if they are not, if you think you are seeing something and they are not seeing it, and maybe it's not actually there and you are the person who's wrong and they are right. But if you think you are seeing a problem or that there's something wrong with someone and they're not willing to engage on it, 
then you could end up in a situation where they cut you out of their lives. And I think that happens with family and friends. And I think with family and friends, because we want these relationships and we've taken all this time cultivating them and we love these people, you become more hesitant. At least I think I become more hesitant um, to confront those things. Sean, a lot of people in life, uh, they talk about markers. They talk about before and after when some some kind of penultimate event happened in their life. Uh, and I'm it's obvious, obvious, but would you say that that death of your friend Chris, unfortunate death in 2010, that definitely brought a uh, a marker in the sand, if you will, of you living a new way as you have moved forward in your life and, and in your career? I wouldn't go that far. I would say, because kind of the way you've asked the question is like, was it things were white before and they're black after. And it isn't like that. I don't think I fully processed how that situation changed me for years. Um, I also don't think I fully dealt with it for years. Um, But once I had done some of that personal work and really thought through it and really thought about like, what do I want to take away from this experience to make me better instead of just make me sad when I remember it. That's what I learned about myself is like, let me take away the, let me take away empathy. Let me take away stepping up and speaking out. Let me take away trying to make sure nothing like this happens again. If I have some inkling that I can prevent it, but I, I don't consider that like a wall. It's a long process of trying a long process of trying to process is what I was about to say, but a long process of trying to decide how can this make me better. Mm. And, you know, I, I definitely would not say right after that I was in not denial, but I wasn't willing to face and stuff. Like one of my other regrets is I did not go to his funeral once they had a memorial service for him in Houston, which took a while. I ended up, um, I was asked to cover something in Guantanamo Bay. I knew it was, I'd have to leave the weekend of his memorial service. And I went anyway. And I wrote a, I wrote something for my mother to say at his memorial service. Um, But I very purposefully, and I did not admit this to myself for a long time either. I disguised it by like, you know what, you have a job and they're asking you to do this and you got to go do it. And sometimes you don't do family things because of that. But really, I probably definitely could have gone to my bosses and said, I need to be home in Houston for this. And um, someone else can go to Guantanamo Bay. And I um, went to get my instead. I hear you. And uh, I want to give you just, I just want to say out loud, it's okay that you didn't go. We have to heal and we have to process in our own way. Um, so I, I, I have total nothing but compassion and empathy for you being willing to make the best choice. That was the best choice for you at that time. Of course, we can look at things differently today. And at that moment, it sounds like that was the best decision for Shauna. And that's OK. And you just I think it's a great place to end on. I think a lot of people in our lot in their lives, we go through so many amazing situations. We go through traumatic situations and everything in between. But one thing we rarely do is actually sit down pause and ask ourselves what you just beautifully said, what do I want to take away from this? I mean, what a powerful question. Okay. Hey team, we just had a big win. Let's go get drinks. Well, hold on a second. Before we get drinks, what do we want to take away from this? Hey, things did not just work out. What do I want to take away from this? This just came to an end. What do we want to take away from this? So I think that's a beautiful way to think about things. And sometimes, as you just said, we don't know that answer right away. It can take time and it can 
and take years. So Shauna, I just want to say, A, thank you for being willing to, to be on here. Uh, B, for being willing to, uh, to share uh, that story. And C, I'm just happy that you're in my life and that all these years later, uh, from back in the day, drinking uh, beers in parking garages in Texas, <laughs> almost getting in uh, car accidents in Alaska, mm-hmm. getting cars broken into in San Francisco, that even though now we are on different coasts of the country, that we can still communicate and connect as we are right now. I, I just want you to also mention going whitewater rafting in Bend, Oregon. Also, we did that. Um, but I got yeah. about that. And also one of the best moments for me in my life, I'm going to, I'm going to say it and I'm going to keep it in the podcast episode as well. <laughs> I mentioned you being willing to stand for something, but one of the things you gave me courage to do that I previously didn't have courage to do back in 2009, we were on a trip in Oregon and one of our colleagues was driving and this person was simultaneously looking at their phone and text messaging <laughs> while they were driving. It's not funny, and, but it was kind of funny. And, and you <laughs> said with no, there was no other option. You will put your phone away. You are not going to take my life or something like that. But you were so clear that, and, and they tried to talk back to you for a second. You're like, uh-uh, no, put your phone away. And I was like, that's what I'm talking about. Because sometimes we're like even hesitant when our life is in the hands of somebody driving a car, looking at their phone to say something. <laughs> and I don't know why I just remembered that because I forgot about it. But, I totally remember that moment. Oh my goodness. I was very annoyed. What a great time. <laughs> uh, you were very annoyed, but... Uh, this podcast episode has been fantastic. Again, thank you for, for sharing so much. And um, Shauna, for people who, who want to follow you, learn more about you, where would you like them? Where's the best place to follow Shauna Thomas? You know what? The easiest way to find me, and then you can find me in other ways, is uh, on Twitter. I am at, at Shauna. I actually just have my name, and that's S-H-A-W-N-A. So you can find my thoughts about politics and random stuff and whatever in Quibi. There's a lot of Quibi tweeting going on right now. Um, and she's very funny, by the way. So if you follow her thread, like she has a, a great sense of humor. That's really, really unique. And you're, you're special in that you just got your first name. You obviously signed up on day one of Twitter to get Shauna. No, Twitter gave it to me as a present. We're going to save, we're going to hang up and we're going to have you on for another episode. Yep. We'll share that with the audience. But when we hang up, you're going to tell me how you got that, that present. Shauna Thomas, thank you again. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Best Thing Podcast with Antonio Neves. Join us next week for more stories that'll help you see the world through a new lens. For more resources, go to theantonioneves.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share with a friend and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.